sins forgiven. He doesn't want us to be uh, there putting sin away because He wants us to sin. There's just a lot of things He doesn't like about the Passover season. So uh, it seems that our trials, our troubles, our tribulations, our attitudes, whatever, go through uh, more trouble and trauma before Passover than other times. But I needed to go to town yesterday, and on the way home, as you know, at least you here know, they've got some construction going on out here on the highway. And uh, I had pulled up and stopped because of the flagman, and uh, usually I'll glance in my rearview mirror when I do that because I feel real vulnerable as the last guy in lane in line, wondering if the guy behind me sees the car stop in the middle of the road. Well, yesterday I didn't look back for some reason. Maybe I reached for something I don't remember, but suddenly I heard a loud thump, and this truck went right beside me. And sideswiped my car, uh, knocked some paint off. I don't think he actually even bent any sheet metal. It was just, just that close. He just barely hit it. It sounded like he just mangled it from inside the car. But uh, he hadn't seen the traffic stopped. And I don't know how fast he was going, but he was in a full-size pickup with a big trailer behind it, pretty heavy. But his skid marks were 568 feet. That's nearly two football fields. That's a lot of black on the pavement. And then a big scattering of rocks where he went off that new shoulder and down in after he sideswiped me. Fortunately, the trailer turned out uh, as the wheels went off and the trailer didn't hit me. But uh, he got a ticket for following too close. Uh, it was pretty close, I thought, because if... As he went, when he went by at that speed, if he'd hit me right in the rear end, uh, that would have totaled my little car for sure. And I don't want it totaled. So, I was just thanking God that he saw me in time to get over far enough where I just, just got a nudge. Uh, didn't get hurt too, didn't hurt the car much, didn't hurt me at all, but... I do remember having prayed yesterday that he'd protect us all and that uh, if I needed to go to town that he'd get me safely home. <laughs> so I considered the way that happened both an answer to prayer and a warning that Passover is coming, be ready, uh, because Satan's after us. And in no uncertain terms, I believe that is the case, especially where we are right now with things beginning to, to happen the way they are. I'll make a little comment right here at the beginning. We may one day, not too far from now, look at January as uh, a very important time. You might remember me saying, and I have from time to time, that a lot of events happened in the church in January, both good and bad, over the years, things that you thought might should have happened in the first month of God's calendar, but they happened in January. And I got to thinking on that a little bit this morning, and I think it kind of cleared up to me why that's been a little bit of a mystery. So let's leave that for the moment and go back a bit and come forward, and maybe I'll remember to explain that.
I think I will. You who have been in the church for quite some time, and most have, realize that our view of prophecy included basically only the world. We read those prophecies back there. Herbert Armstrong read them to us back in the 50s and 60s some before Ted went on to whales and platypuses. And we read Ezekiel 5, and he explained that a third of us would die of famine and pestilence, a third by war, and a third going to captivity. And we looked upon all those prophecies as having to do with America and with the world, but we didn't really grasp them for what they were. Events happened in the church which absolutely blindsided us because we did not have understanding ahead of time about what was really going to happen because we thought all that stuff was coming on the world and just before it came on the world we would be whisked away in airliners over to Petra and Jordan of the Middle East and be protected from everything that was about to happen. So we didn't spend a lot of time or concern with those prophecies because we really didn't think they would affect us in any way. Because we'd be spirited away uh, as long as we didn't look back and miss the plane. We'd be okay. And then Herbert Armstrong died. There were not too many who really expected that because we had always thought that this thing would happen before he died, and he himself thought that he and Ted were to be the two witnesses. And, it, and in a sense, on a minor level, they were. I have no doubt of that. Uh, but not as a final fulfillment, and certainly not as dramatically as the Bible speaks of by any means. I've told you before, I... I uh, was talking to a member of the church, Kevin Hall it was, up in Soldotna, Alaska, in the church there, in the summer of 95. And Mr. Armstrong had become pretty ill by then. And Kevin was very perplexed. He was frustrated and confused and worried. We were standing outside after services, and he says, Is Mr. Armstrong going to be allowed to die? And I said, I don't know, Kevin, but if he does, it'll be in January. And indeed, he did die, and it was in January. I remember, I remember it just like I did when the day John F. Kennedy was shot. I was just coming out of a geology class, and somebody told me right there in front of the building, and with Mr. Armstrong, some of us from Alaska had gone to Dallas for the National Building Convention. And we'd just gotten into the motel room and we're getting ready to settle down when a call came January 16th and said Mr. Armstrong had died. So I, I remember, you probably remember it as well, where you were and what you were doing. And it, it was such a, such a shock and a trauma to realize that he who had been leading us all those years was now dead. What's next? And then things began to happen. We didn't have a clue that the whole church was going to be blown apart, did we? 
No. We'd been taught all those years that we were Philadelphia and that all the trouble would come, not on Philadelphia, who would go to Petra on airplanes, but on Laodicea, who was left behind. Now, when the whole church got blown apart, people didn't know what to do with that. So, human nature being what it is, they assumed that they were Philadelphia and they would be taken away and protected still, but everybody else out there that was scattered was Laodicea. Couldn't be them, you know, it had to be all those other guys. We've been over this many times. But we weren't prepared. We didn't know what was going to happen. We had some thoughts in mind, but we didn't grasp it. Now, are we better prepared today? Are we better armed? I don't think the church as a whole is. They still don't have a clue what is about to happen, or how it's going to happen, or what the main events are going to be, nor do they understand the prophecies probably much better than they did back in 72 or 75 or 80. They're oblivious. Oblivious. America is oblivious about what is about to come on America. The Scriptures even say it'll come as a complete surprise and we won't know where it came from as a nation. Now, has God prepared us a little better? Let's go back and understand some things, do you realize that Christ was a direct type of the church? Maybe you haven't really thought about it in these terms. We might have understood it in principle in a way. But he was a direct type of what would happen to the church. Now, from the beginning, not many people paid attention to God from Adam and Eve on down for a long, long time. In fact, Christ said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now let's look at the panorama of God's plan for a moment before we get more specific. And that applies from the beginning on. Those who were in the first 1,600 years before Noah's flood will be saved when? Great White Throne Judgment. Last, last crop, last bunch. Now, those who came in the latter days will be first into the kingdom of God. Uh, in this sense, I'm looking at a whole 7,000-year plan or 7,000 plus the Great White Throne Judgment, however long it is. And very, very few were saved in the first 4,000 years. So the latter days would be years 5, 6, and 7, or 5, 6, 7,000 years. So those who came in the first 4,000 are last, and those who came in the last 2,000, or last 2,000 actually, or first, and those of the millennium uh, after them, and then the great white throne judgment last. So he set it up that way. Now let's look at Christ specifically there, in that he was the first of the first fruits, and the firstborn of many brethren. So it was after the fourth 
6,000 years, that Christ came and began to work with the last days, the last 2,000 years. Now, what happened there? He was born as a little child that didn't know much. The church started out, here at the end at least, and it did back in his day too, as a group of people who didn't know much and weren't even converted. He told Peter, when you were converted, and he'd been with him for three and a half years at that point, then feed my sheep, take care of people, when you were converted. So the apostles weren't even converted at the time of Christ's death. That didn't really happen until Pentecost. So they were babes in truth in that sense and didn't grasp much. Even as Herbert Armstrong didn't, and over a period of time he learned. So look upon his conversion and calling as a babe in Christ. Took him a while. He misunderstood government for a long time and wrote an article about it that people still look back and say, well, we're supposed to have a democratic government in the church because that's what Mr. Armstrong said in that first article. Well, they don't give him any room to learn or to grow. What did Christ say? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Don't necessarily, and don't, stay in one spot, but grow and learn. And receive more grace and pardon as you do learn. Because that knowledge is important to have in order for us to do what we need to do to be a part of the kingdom of God. So, he went through childhood, just as we have a new life when we're born of the, or begotten of the Spirit, when we're baptized and have the laying on of hands. We start a new life, just as he did. And then as he grew up, he dealt with the vicissitudes of life, of hatred, animosity, that little bastard from Nazareth he was called by bullies around him. And uh, life was pretty tough for Christ. When he grew older, then he had the Pharisees and the religious leaders, not just the kids at school or neighbors, trying to kill him. And this went on for quite some time. He managed to escape away, and his father delivered him. So he didn't die until the time came that he was to die. Now, we are to die, and he was a type of us. Now, he, in that sense, died daily in his life. He put his physical wants and desires aside and never gave in to them, not even once. And that's what we're supposed to do. But he was closer to his father than we are. <laughs> And he worked at it very, very diligently because he knew what was at stake. So he never sinned. Now we have. And fortunately, he is our mediator and our Savior. And through his death and resurrection, we can have forgiveness and life. So he is a direct type of what we are going through here. We also are appointed once to die as he did. A few uh, types are general in that sense. A few will be changed instead of resurrected here at the very end. 
But in one sense, that's a type of death too, isn't it? Because the physical disappears and you become spirit. So you slough off the physical. I don't know whether people on the earth will see bodies dropping or not. (laughs) Because there is a conversion that goes on there between physical and spirit. So he was a perfect type for the church. Now I submit to you that the church here at this end time is a direct type for the world. We need to think of ourselves that way. We need to understand that concept. Now let's understand it from this standpoint. We were blindsided in worldwide, as I said. Didn't know what was about to happen or how it was going to come down or anything. But we are going to be a very direct type for the world to see. We've been over the scriptures many times, so I won't take time to try to go through them all in one sermon. But we've seen how God is going to gather some people, only 10%, and he will use them to be gathered and to set up a society that is godly. They will not live too closely together, small villages and in the country, and everyone will have his own vine and fig tree. During this period prior to the millennium. Now this maybe explains better why we need to build a temple and build the city of Jerusalem. People have said, well, why do you need that? It's only there for a short time and then Christ is coming. Well, if the church is to be a type to the world of what is to come eventually to them, then we have to be what the millennium is all about. Now, how did we picture the millennium in the sermons at the feast and all that? Well, Christ would come and take his first fruits with him. We kind of thought he was going to come on down at that time and set up his kingdom on the earth immediately. We'll rise to meet him in the air, and then our perception was we'd come on back down with him. Well, that's not what the scripture says. But we thought then we'd read Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 35 and some of those about the wolf and the lamb and the snake and all those things and children lying down with them, be plenty and peace and prosperity and uh, someone would come up behind you and tell you not to sin. Hey, we don't do that here. Well, all those things are going to come to pass in the millennium. But do you realize that in a small way, they're all going to come to pass prior to the millennium? And the reason we need to go through all the things that we are about to go through as a church is so that we can be there for the world to see as a type of what God is going to offer them. Only that way... Can those who are preaching the end time witness be able to show the world the contrast between what's happening to them and what is going, what is happening to the church? And they're not only given plagues 
and dire warnings, but they are given also with that hope that if they will obey God, they can have everything that the church currently has at the time that that preaching is going on. So we have to, between now and the time the tribulation begins, morph into something that can be pointed to as a direct type of what the world will be offered in the millennium. Now, during the millennium, when the new heavens and new earth come down, the Father and the Son will come with it, Revelation 21, the 144,000, the bride, will come with them. He comes, we meet him in the air, go back to the throne, and have a one-year honeymoon while the seven last plagues go. Then he comes back with a vesture dipped in blood, his saints with him, and puts down all rebellion that is left on the earth. And the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, comes with. says the Father and the Son will be the temple of it. Won't need any temple then. They'll be the temple. Revelation 21. And nothing unclean will be allowed inside Jerusalem. So, what's the type? We have to go to Zion, as we know. It is the place of refuge. We have to go to Jerusalem, which is just north of it. And there we have to build a temple, which will be a type of the temple to come with the new Jerusalem. That temple will be a type of the Father and the Son. And they will put their glory upon it, because they will, at the beginning of the millennium, put their glory in New Jerusalem. So it will only be there for a very short while as a witness to the world. And when it is finished, or maybe even during its building, comes the order to build Jerusalem there in Daniel. And as soon as Jerusalem is built and finished, 70 weeks later, the abomination of desolation is set up within it. The evil ones come into the temple, they come into Jerusalem, and they defile it, don't they? The abomination is set up, and that's the clue for those gathered there, that we are to flee to Zion to escape the defilement of the temple and of Jerusalem. Now, God does not take happily the defilement of his temple and of Jerusalem. So, he takes his people out of there, puts them in Zion, and that day immediately begins the 1260 days of witness <coughs> against the sinners. They are not supposed to be in Jerusalem. They're not supposed to be in the temple. Remember what it says there in Revelation 21? When they bring the new Jerusalem down, no sinner, no defiler will be allowed to enter therein. So the types separate. Here, <coughs> they are allowed to come in and defile it. 
And there that type ends because when the new one comes down, they will not be allowed there to defile it. Now in the meantime, <coughs> we have two who will be going around the world to everyone telling them they should not have done that. That that was a sin against the Almighty God of the heavens and the earth. And then he is not going to take it nicely. And that they are going to suffer as a result. Now, while that dire message is going to them, at the same time, at the end of each of those sermons or appearances in various cities, they will also be told, you've done wrong, if you will repent, here's what you will receive. If you don't, you're going to get some plagues starting today. The plagues of Egypt, which Revelation 11 says will be put upon them. So they will be given a dire message of you should not have sinned and defiled God's temple or his city. And then they will be told, those people in Zion have a wall of fire around them. They are protected. They are secure. They don't have to worry about food. It's being provided free. Wine and milk without money. Everything is done for them. Their weather is perfect. They don't have any inner city problems because there are no cities. Because God hates cities. He does. So everything that God is going to do with that 10% gathering is the same thing He's going to do with the 10% of Israel almost and even less than that with the world, that are left over as the millennium begins. We are going to be given the exact same conditions. Isaiah 51 says it will be like the Garden of Eden that God originally gave and man screwed up. And he's going to give them an example of that as a hope for the future and as a carrot if they will repent. Now, doesn't God do that in all the prophecies? Look at the end of, of all the different prophecies. He will go through and say, I'm about to punish you for what you've done. Now you need to repent and turn to me. And then at the end, he says, in one place at least, he says, you'll return to me early and I will bless you. Now he's speaking to the church. We sinned. We were blown apart. Now we are hopefully repenting and he is going to bless us with millennial conditions. Then we will go to the world and say, you have sinned. God is angry with you. You are going to suffer great harm, but you must repent. Now, if you do repent, we're going to bring you the same blessings that those people in Zion are enjoying at the moment. Only worldwide. So, the church is a direct type. We've gone through the horrors of one-third of us dying of spiritual famine and pestilence, a third dying a spiritual death, giving up, and then the last third 
Another third have gone back into the captivity of the world. Protestantism, Catholicism, atheism, wherever they are. It's happened. It's done. Now we're at the point of God doing the gathering and starting all over again, just as he will with the world in the millennium. Now, he deals with spiritual Israel first, as I've said many times. And we have already gone through the spiritual level of destruction, church being destroyed. We are now, hopefully, in the repenting, overcoming phase. And hopefully we're getting close to being usable by God. I hope we are. The world is just now beginning to go into what we have, on a physical level, what we have gone through spiritually. And January could very well mark the beginning of that serious trouble. There's a scripture, I think it's in Isaiah, that talks about the time of Jacob's trouble. When did the coronavirus hit? January in China. And then began to spread around the world. It began to hit here just recently. And is beginning to grow. I read a, a projection the other day where they show it increasing in the, the infection level, level at a very low amount, lower than apparently is actually going on. And they projected the infections and deaths beginning February 4th through March, April, May, June, and then July the 4th. And it started out small and then increased until it became exponential and began to spread very rapidly. And that graph, using very conservative statistics, show about 2 million dead by July 4th in this country alone. I remind you, you may have heard of this one. I heard of it years ago where someone was given a choice. Would you rather have a penny doubled every day for 30 days or a million dollars? And people start doing little math and they say, well, one times two is two cents, four cents, eight cents, 16 cents, 32 cents, 64 cents, $1.28. And they're starting to think, maybe I want that million bucks. But I did the math in there this morning on my calculator, and if I did it right, it begins to suddenly explode in numbers as it gets bigger. And by the end of 30 days, just doubling one penny, it was over a billion dollars. That passed. The last day it went from 500 million to over a billion. <laughs> just doubled. Just like the penny. So you wanted the penny times 30, for sure. But these diseases do kind of the same thing. They start off with just a few cases, and more are exposed, and more exposed, and it gets a little bigger, and then suddenly it just explodes. Now, whether that will happen with this, ultimately, I don't know at this point. It may or it may not. It could burn itself out. That's always possible. But... There are some ramifications from it that I think are going to be very, very important. 
I did find it interesting, though, that it started in January. You may remember I told you, oh, several months back, that I always watched January because of things that had happened in the church. And the beginning of the true trouble in the church began with Herbert Armstrong's death in January. And it may be that the true terrible times for Jacob had their roots in January just passed. I think that's a very likely possibility. Now, from 2017 in the summer on, which I think was the end of the 430 and the 70, and of the 65 of the uh, 65 years of Isaiah 70 or seven, uh, with the destruction of Ephraim. He said, it's near, it's come, it's come, it's close. Not quite, not quite here, but it won't be like the echoing of the hills. And then since then, we've seen several scriptures that indicate maybe the third year, third day. All right, what about that analogy of the 7,000 years? Christ proclaimed at the end of 4,000 years a jubilee. And then you have two days, 2,000 years, and the delivery on the whole plan of God begins beginning of the third year, third thousand years, and a seven thousand year plan. So in an overall perspective, looking at the broad spectrum of history, we see that the third day, after Christ proclaimed that, is the time of deliverance for the world. Now, the church being a type of the world, it may be that our deliverance begins this third day, third year, not a thousand years, but this is a smaller matter of time we're dealing with. The third year might be the time for our deliverance, just like it will be for the world the third thousand years after Christ. So the analogy fits, and God works in patterns. And he set all these things up way, way, way ahead of time. And when I see how it all fits together, and all these scriptures suddenly come together here at the end, I'm just amazed at how God has set this all up in a broad perspective of thousands of years, brings it down to years, and then finally days. What about the amount of time that the two witnesses preached to the world. Three and a half years. And it's after those three and a half years that their deliverance comes. Not immediately, because Christ has to go up and marry his bride and wait a year, but within a year after that. So it's not there, but it's come, it's come, it's very close for them. So the scriptures we're looking at that apply to us also apply to the world. Middle of that third day or third year uh, is when the first resurrection comes. And that is the beginning of the plan of salvation for the world. Christ comes, takes his bride, prepares her to come back and rule the world in beauty and law and peace and security is during that third year, three and a half years after it starts.
here we are about three and a half years after July of 2017. Third day, we're in it. Now, I'm not going to say that this stuff's all going to happen right now. I don't know that for sure until I see it happen. But I see things happening that seem to indicate this could be it. Now, let's look a little bit again. We'll go back a ways and then bring this forward to today. I don't think anybody in the church, other than you, understand what the 430 days of Ezekiel laying on his side meant. Have you heard anywhere that that beginning in Roanoke, Virginia, 430 years later was July of 2017? And that it is a microcosm of the time that Israel was in Egypt? Exactly 430 years. Now, this type isn't exactly the same. We didn't come out uh, on the self-same day 430 years later. But he gives some leeway there in Ezekiel. He says, when that 430 is done, Ezekiel, Israel is going to go into captivity. And then he says in chapter 7, not immediately, not the same day, but very near thereafter. Not again the echoing, but it's close. So all these things had to occur, and maybe he needed to give us that three years, third year, so that the type fits with the overall broad plan of the world. Now, what was God doing with us in this 430 years that America has existed since Roanoke until July 17? Not July, July of 2017. He gave us back the time that we were in Mitzrayim is what he's doing. Now, when they first went into Mitzrayim, Jacob and all, it was kind of with a high hand in a way. Joseph was there. Uh, They were going to have food, and there's drought where they were from, and everything looked pretty good. You know, let's stay here. And it was even said that Joseph would lay the coins on uh, Jacob's eyeballs or close his eyes uh, when he died there. So, things looked pretty good at first. But then, over a period of not too long a time, the Egyptians began to realize, well, these people could be our servants. And they became servants. And then they became abject slaves. And then God had to deliver them after 430 years from utter slavery. Now, What has happened in America? From Roanoke, those people apparently survived when they went inland. And then 20 years later, you had Jamestown, which uh, was the historical first permanent settlement. But I think God is showing us that Roanoke was, because 20 years from 2017 uh, puts us way too late for everything that is currently happening in the world It takes us away from the 7,000-year plan. It takes us away from the Jubilee and puts us beyond it. Jubilee coming in 2026 or 2027, based on Christ making that announcement in Luke 4. So if that was the acceptable year of the Lord then, then 2027 is now, 2,000 years later. Herbert Armstrong was called 1,900 years later. 
And we have an end time work of 100 years and it ends. Just like Noah. 100 years and it ends. Christ used the type of Noah. And I think it's not just the building of the ark, but the timing as well. 100 years. So, uh, Jamestown would be about 17 years too late. Would be well into the next Jubilee uh, time. So, if Roanoke was it, and I do believe it was, what happened? People were being oppressed where they were. They were having trouble, just like Jacob and his family were having trouble. And here it opened up that maybe they could go to North America and live. So they jumped some ships and came over and started a culture. Uh, Now, when more ships came and more people came, some people were keeping the Sabbath and the Holy Days. They weren't keeping Christmas and Easter. Everything looked good. It looked like they could serve and obey God here. Just as Jacob had thought he could serve God in Mitzrayim. And then things began to go sour. Now, they were oppressed, had began to be oppressed. After they got here, they felt free for a while. Then Britain began to oppress them. And that led to this tea party and the revolution and everything that occurred so that we might have our freedom. So everything's looking good. We got freedom from England. Well, sort of. If you understand what's, what true law is today in America, we're still under uh, the auspices of the crown in England. But that's a different story. Anyway, we set up our own government. Now, we looked upon our founding fathers, Abraham, I mean, uh, George Washington and Ben Franklin and some of those people, as God-fearing men who were setting up uh, a godly form of government and constitution. No, that is not correct. The Constitution follows English common law fairly closely, and it's certainly recognizable as such. But the Constitution was not God's Word. It was not the Bible. Was it? Now, to do this thing right, people should have come over here, they should have landed on these shores, opened the Bible, and said, we're going to follow every word of this book. And we will have a godly society, we will govern completely according to the Bible. That is our Constitution. Now, for you and me, we've recognized that, have we not? We are not here today to learn the American Constitution and everything about it, are we? Now, it was a decent document, don't get me wrong. But that's not what we're here to do. We're here to live by every word of God, and the Scripture cannot be broken, and it is here to give us instruction in righteousness And to be what we live by. Now that should have been what those pilgrims adopted. Should have been what those in Roanoke adopted instead of probably Indian customs. 
And had we followed this word very, very carefully, we would have had 430 years of peace and prosperity. What did we do? We built big cities. Read Isaiah 5. It says, Woe to him that builds house to house and field to field even. That's not God's way to build cities. Where are our biggest troubles today? In the cities. What does God tell us to do today? Go to the field, get out of the city. That's what He tells us to do. He hates cities. When you realize there will be 144,000 living in the New Jerusalem, it's 1,500 miles cubed, apparently. And that leaves for every one of us square miles of space. We'll not be living that close together. Or at least there will be a lot of space there. And he wants us to live that way. He's going to put seven, eight, ten thousand people in the whole of Zion, which may go from the coxcomb to the hurricane fault line. Secret places of the stairs. I don't know how much Zion is going to encompass. Maybe a lot bigger than the national park itself. Have plenty of room. Lots of room. That's the way it should have been. But what did we do? We did just like Nimrod and the pagans. Built big cities. And that's a curse today. So we didn't do it God's way. We did it man's way. Now let's get back to our founding fathers. What was their religion? I think the average American thinks that they were Christians. No, they were not Christians. In their own words, in their own testimony, they were deists. D-E-I-S-T-S. A deist is someone who does believe that at some point God did a creation and did create man, but then he went far away, he was tired to take a nap, and he did not get involved in the affairs of men after that. He just created us and turned us loose on our own without him. That's what Abraham Lincoln, I'm not Abraham, may have him too, but George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and all those guys believed. That was their religion. Self-professed. I'm not sticking a label on them. They said that's what they were, is this. So what did they do? They laid out what? A city. They laid out a big city and then began to fill in the pieces. They laid it out with Masonic shapes in the streets. Then they did Greek and Roman architecture and the buildings, the capital, everything. And put up phallic symbols here, there, and everywhere. All the way back to Nimrod worship and Semiramis worshiping her son and his plumbing. We did it all over again right here. Now, we still looked upon ourselves as free. But over a period of time, we became what? Slaves to the system. They didn't follow God's law. They didn't take 
as a tithe and run the whole government on it. They started taxation, and now you've got tax that goes up into what, 40, 50%? I don't know how high it goes anymore. But it ain't 10. That's what God was going to give Israel to do the whole government, 10%. And then live on that, plus offerings or whatever, but that was what was legislated. That's what we should have done, but we didn't follow the Bible. <clears throat> then we created an IRS to collect that kind. What did God told Israel? You want a king? You don't want my prophets? You don't want my priests that I send? You want a king? He'll tax you to non-existence, he said. Yeah, we want a king. So he gave him one, and that's what happened. Just what he had said would happen. We became onerous became a pain in the neck. Hasn't our government become a pain in the neck? Don't they try to control everything in our lives and take pictures of us everywhere? And isn't it getting more and more and more that way every day? Yes, it is. So we have become slaves to the system. You aren't on your own farm, earning your living by the sweat of your hand and being able to keep what you earn and what you grow, and if you work hard and have an abundance, it's yours. Instead, we work for big corporations, owned by even bigger corporations, and they legislate how much we will earn, and they have a minimum wage, and people try to keep you down to it. So more and more, we work for Taco Bell and Wendy's and whoever, in service jobs with limited pay, and we barely get by. Now, it, was, it isn't like it was in 1945 to 5055. Back then, a man could go out and work, and he could earn enough to have a house and a car and feed his family and subsist off of one wage. Now the corporations have got it. They wanted the women in the workplace, so they got them there. And now they've raised the prices to where it takes basically two incomes to have a house and a car and to feed your family. So they made slaves of the women and made the women think that they were receiving some wonderful bonus. Now they get to work full-time and do full-time house stuff too. And full-time raising of the kids. <coughs> Life is harder than it was. <coughs> so things have gotten increasingly worse. We're in a form of slavery for 430 years. It could have been different had we adopted this book as our Constitution and followed every word of it. America would not be where America is today. But we took a democratic, a republican form of government, a mixture of Greek and Roman empires and other junk, and formed our society from that. And now we are going down and being destroyed just like the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire and every other empire that's ever been on earth because we followed their ways. That's where we are. Now, the deists were correct in one sense. God did create us, and then he basically turned us loose 
on our own. He told Adam and Eve, you're free moral agents. You can do as you please. But I'm telling you what's going to happen if you do this. And they did it anyway. And then what he said happened, happened, or would happen. A man has gone his way, and Satan's way, pretty much ever since. Except for a few individuals here and there in a bigger group right after Christ was here. And now another bigger group here at the end. But mankind has basically ignored God and gone after Satan and his ways. And done things his way. Now God has intervened once in a while with individuals. And he basically said, seek me and you shall find me. Has America sought God and found him? No. Now we're known as a non-Christian nation. And most of our people will say, I'm not a Christian. If you do a poll. So we're not a Christian nation anymore. Never were, really. Pseudo-Christians. Sort of Christians. Would-be Christians. Hypocrites. As Christians. Weren't following this book. So now God says that we're going to suffer the result. I gave you 430 years to turn to and follow me, and you didn't do it. You couldn't do it in Egypt. So I gave you 430 years so you could do it, and you didn't do it. Now you're going into another captivity. And not it's been a short one, not 430 years. It's going to be a very short one. But a third of us will die of famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and a third will be taken as slaves for a short while until 2026. Where it probably will end. Now, what time is it? I have a whole lot more here that I wanted to get to, but I'm not going to get to most of it. Let me see where to kind of cut through here. <clears throat> As a type of the church, we have to be everything, need to be everything to the world that the 144,000 will be to the world when the millennium starts. So we are called upon to be that kind of Christian. If we're to be the bride of Christ, we need to be acting like the bride now. We need to be preparing ourselves for a bigger job. But we have a smaller job with the world. So the, the two witnesses, when they go out, we're all witnesses, as Isaiah 42 and 43 mentioned several times. We're all witnesses to the world. If we're in Zion for three and a half years, we're there as a witness to the world of how things should be and how they can have that. So the message from the two that do the preaching about it will be, as I said earlier, a dire warning that if they don't turn and repent and obey God, they will be punished. And they won't do like Nineveh. They're not going to repent. So plagues will come upon them. But at the end of each sermon, the end of each visit, to wherever, everywhere on the world, around the world as a witness, after being warned and then told, if you don't repent, plagues will come, 
and they don't fall on their knees and repent and turn to God, the final part of the message will be, here is what God has for you. Look at those people and the peace and the prosperity and the protection that they have. Now, as a type of the world, and as the church is a type of Christ, the witnesses are a type to the world. And at the end of that three and a half year period, <clears throat> those two are going to die in the streets, on the streets of Jerusalem in a battle. <coughs> now, Christ was a type of the church, but the type isn't exact in every case, or in any case, really. Christ was crucified outside the city. God hates cities. Okay? Cities represent sin. Christ could not be crucified within the city. It had to be outside the walls. He was a perfect type. And in the kingdom of God, it will be New Jerusalem, which is very large and not filled, and not filled with sin, and nobody who is a sinner will be allowed within the gates. Now, the two witnesses are killed inside the city because they are living in, still, a sinful world. And they have to be a type to the world that if you continue to live in sin, you're going to die in your cities. But the kicker is they'll be resurrected a few days later. And the world will see them in glory. Now, they've been telling the world that you could be in glory if you will depart from sin and obey God. So the death of the two is going to be a direct type to the world. Their last warning, that if you will repent, you can rise into glory. Which is what happens with them and those who are the witnesses in Zion. They too will rise at the same time to meet Christ in the air. The dead an instant before, and then them which are alive and remain. So you, as you rise from the ground, are not just getting salvation, you're fulfilling a type to the whole world. They will see you rise to meet Christ. They'll see the two leave this sinful city of Jerusalem and rise to meet Christ in the air. And then they will see fulfilled what they've been told for the last three and a half years. Then they go through the seven last plagues. And most of them die. And then Christ returns with his bride and sets up the kingdom that Zion was a type of. Do you realize how important you are in God's plan? Do you grasp that? Do we live as if we grasp that? Do we obey Him with all our hearts as if we understand that we are such an important part of His plan? Do we even believe Him? Do we believe these Scriptures? You know... These sermons have been on the internet now for 
over 23 years. Actually, some of them longer than that, back to 96. Well, that, that includes that. How many people hear it and believe it? How many people have visited, listened just a little bit, or read the introduction, and away from there, don't want that? Nearly everybody. There's just a few. And to them are going to be added 10% of the church. And they're going to fulfill the type of Christ and a type to the world. We need to understand how important this is and why it's important that we build a temple in Jerusalem. Because they're a type of the kingdom to come with Christ and His Father as the temple of the new Jerusalem. doesn't last long. And the type goes on through because the two witnesses are killed and the world has a party and thinks we won. Now we're going to have peace and security without those two around. And you know what? The witnesses are a type of the world. And if God's leaders are going to die, what's going to happen to the beast and false prophet? It says right there he's going to take them by the nap of the neck and throw them in the lake of fire. So the true witness dies out and then becomes immortalized. The false system of Satan dies and goes into the lake of fire. So the types separate there, right at the end. Two for you, two for me. This is the way that works. Now, let me take just a minute here, or two or three. If this coronavirus, which is apparently a bioweapon, is turned loose, has been in China, may have been in Iran, don't know, may have just spread there. But people are saying it's just the flu. Well, the top leader, the top advisor to Khomeini in Iran died of it. Now 27 members of the Iranian parliament have it. So it's going through their government like through a goose. And it's increasing here day by day. Uh, what state was it just announced their first two deaths? Yes, this morning, I think, or last night. And there have been 11 or 12 or so in Washington, and it's going up every day. What is that going to cause? Well, supply lines are already being cut off. Some people can't buy tires. They come from China. Some people can't get iPhone parts. They come from China. The manufacturing over there has pretty much shut down. And you're not going to get parts for your things here Pretty quickly. They've already said refrigeration shut down. You can't get parts for refrigeration. What, ha what does that do to grocery stores and 7-Elevens? Can't fix their equipment. The U.S. military gets parts for its jet fighters and bombers from China. <laughs> we get our car parts from China. The Chinese have began laundering their money, sanitizing it because it had germs all over it. Now, I'm hearing, I don't know whether it's true or not for sure, that they've already gone ahead and introduced their digital system and they're going to do away with physical money. 
which is what the plan is around the world, that we have digital money. And you can't buy and sell without a chip in your hand or your forehead. It's coming. Now it's happening. This has shut down trade around the world to a crawl from what it was. That is going to affect, affect economies greatly. So whether it becomes at this point a great pandemic and kills tens of millions or not, it may be the trigger that creates the financial collapse that Zephaniah and other places in the Bible talk about that will lead to our total downfall. <coughs> this whole process of Jacob's trouble may have begun in January and will escalate from there. And God will have to deliver his people somewhere pretty quick while it's still possible. My personal thought is that maybe if things start this spring that way, uh, the virus will kind of die out and allow people to get here. Uh, On the other hand, maybe he has something a little different in mind, and maybe they can get here in spite of it. There may be thousands and millions of people falling. We'll see. There's no way to to truly know exactly how things will happen, okay? But we know a third of us are going to die of famine and pestilence. One out of three Americans. One third will die of the sword when the invasion occurs. And that may be right after the financial collapse and the weakening of everything, so that all they have to do is just come in and slaughter and take over. And then a third will be slaves. In 2005, the Chinese Secretary of Defense gave a speech in which he said that they need America to colonize because they have too many people. And he said in that speech that they were going to use bioweapons to destroy us because they didn't want to use nuclear and destroy the infrastructure they wanted here for their colonists. So they said, or he said, they're going to use bioweapons and kill us with plagues. And then they can take over. That was his speech in 2005. Did they release it? There's a lot that I would like to get to, and maybe I'll stop there and, and wait till next week to get into more of what's happening and is about to happen, and maybe an outline of the events that God says have to happen, and then exactly how it happens in the world, we're watching. Because God says, this will happen, and then you say, how? And then you watch, and you pray always, so that you know and see the leaves on the trees that this is happening, this is happening, and this is happening. Oh, that's how that fits the Bible. So we already know what's going to happen. We don't know exactly how. And I think we know pretty much when, because God is precise, and he allotted 6,000 years to man and Satan, and we've been here nearly that long. Probably ends in 2027, 6,000 years since man was created. So there's a lot that's got to happen, if that date is indeed correct, and I have no reason to believe it isn't, because it fits together with so many things so well. So we shall see. But you'd better be getting ready physically because we may be quarantined 
and not be able to go to town. What are you going to eat? Can you live two, three, four, five, six months without going to town? You got enough food on hand to do that? Go to the ant, you sluggard. He lays up for six months. Some of those staple things are beginning to disappear from our shelves. You go to Costco or Walmart or Target, you don't find toilet paper. You don't find hand sanitizer. You don't find rice. You don't find some of the basic staples that people use as dry foods to live on. I mean, carrots don't keep very long. Dehydrated carrots do. That stuff's all available. It's getting in scarce of supply at the Bishop's storehouse, the Mormons. You can buy it cheap there, cheaper than anywhere. But it's beginning to disappear. Beginning to get shorter supply, I hear. Well, if you're not prepared physically, are you prepared spiritually? Maybe we better take the time to be sure we're spiritually prepared because we have to be a witness to and a type of the world. A type of what they should become. And we need to live like it and act like it and talk like it and love each other like it. Because that's what he's called us to do, is be a type and a witness.